From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I'm in a closet. And this week, I would like to make an exception. What I mean by that is that usually I like to maintain the little fiction that this show comes from an actual valley called Lexicon Valley, where everything is always happy, and that's why the show is not usually particularly topical. But obviously, there are certain things going on right now around the world that really, if I didn't address it in any way, I wouldn't be doing my job. A lot of you have been asking. And so I'm going to devote this episode to the COVID-19 virus and its implications for language, what it can teach us about language. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The truth is the topic is not as juicy as you might think. Nevertheless, it does deserve to be addressed. You know where I'm going to start? With a street myth that's been going around. People keep asking me about this, and I figure this is as good a place as any to address it. And this is the idea that, and some of you have probably already seen this, that Japan has had less of a problem with the virus than the United States because of something about the language. Oh, we love things like this. When things like this pan out, it is absolutely delicious. And in this case, you can see a video that shows that Japanese consonants have less of a puff than their equivalents in English. And so we say p, Japanese has something more like p. That means, to put it in technical terms, Japanese aspiration on consonants is weaker than in English. Now, you might entertain the notion that that means that a Japanese person is less likely to transmit the virus because they're not puffing out as much vapor when they talk to another person. Now, one must think about such things because one must always be open to the wonders of the world beyond the easy ones about food and sex. And so one thinks about such things. But in this case, when you think about it, it doesn't really quite pan out. And so, for example, English and aspiration. Well, we have it. So puh. And then Japanese is more like puh. Okay. But the thing is, consonants of that kind in, for example, many of the Romance languages are even less aspirated as in not. So, in French, you say parler, not parler. That's the American accent, parler. You don't have aspiration. Spanish is the same way. To have a good accent in those languages is to let go of that puffiness. And yet, we're all aware that, for example, Spain has had certain problems with the virus, despite the fact that they presumably aren't spitting on each other as much as people in the United States. Or you think about comparisons like um, Iran and Iraq. So these are two countries. The COVID problem has been more rampant in Iran than in Iraq, and yet you'd never know it from the languages. And so, for example, Arabic has all sorts of stuff going on that would make you spit. And that's including the Mesopotamian dialect of Arabic that people speak casually in Iraq. So, for example, you have these consonants that 
you can pronounce either in what we would think of from English as a normal way or a way where you also take your tongue in the back and put it closer to the top of the mouth, in which case it becomes a little spittier. So there's a difference between a t and a b, a t and a b, the pharyngealized consonants as they're called. So that's pushing out some air, and you know, this is the sort of thing that you might think would be conducive to the virus, if we were going to think about it that way. Or you've got these sounds that are made in the back of the throat, these kind of throat-clearing sounds that Arabic is famous for. It's these neat, again, pharyngeal fricatives. You've got the back there. Once again, if that's part of your regular speech stream, well, if we have this Japanese theory, then presumably there would be such a problem in Iraq. Whereas Persian is like butter, in terms of its sounds compared to Arabic standard or Mesopotamian Arabic. Persian just happens to be one of those languages. It's got its puffs and, and hisses, not as much as Arabic. It's buttery. Persian reminds me in terms of its sounds of, you know, some butterfly animated by Disney circa 1947. That's Persian phonology. And yet more of a COVID problem than over in Iraq. So when you do those sorts of comparisons around the world, you can see that the issue is not the sound system. Now, that's not to say that these correlations of sound systems with things about the people or geography are never valid. And I have touched on this show on notions such as that tonal languages are maybe spoken more where it's human. You know, just maybe these sorts of things can pan out. This one, though, doesn't work. But I hate to have to throw cold water on things like that without giving you something else. And the truth is, I don't do sounds on this show very much. It's partly because they don't always lend themselves to my kind of narrative. It's partly because I'm not a sound man. I'm not a phonologist. And so, frankly, they don't inherently interest me as much as issues of word order, etc. But still, it can teach you things. There are counterintuitive things. And so, for example, let me drag you into my phonological head, the sort of thing that occurs to me just randomly. Let's use, well, let me see, just pulling a television show out of the air that I have never made reference to before. Let's try the Lucy show with Lucille Ball. We are in 1968 at this point, and the wonderful, dependable Mary Wicks is playing Aunt Agatha. Now, listen to Mary Wicks saying these very ordinary lines. Oh, Aunt Agatha, what are you doing here? Well, when you left this morning, you forgot the lunch I prepared for you. I know. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> now, this will keep your strength up through the day. There's an organic salad in there with sunflower seeds and a freshly ground pollen burger. Oh, goody. Goody. Okay, where was Mary Wicks from? You can tell instantly. I'm going to play it one more time. Oh, Aunt Agatha, what are you doing here? Well, when you left this morning, you forgot the lunch I prepared for you. I know. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> now, this will keep your strength up through the day. There's an organic salad in there with sunflower seeds and a freshly ground pollen burger. Oh, goody. Goody. From the way she says morning and organic, you know right there that she almost certainly was raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And that's because one of the features of speech there. More in the past than now, but the past means that people who are of a certain age and beyond still have this vibrantly, is that or comes out as are. 
And the big joke there is that you say farty instead of 40, but it's ors in general. And so good morning and something being organic. And I'm saying it that way with no exaggeration whatsoever. Whenever Mary Wicks does that, it reminds me oh, she was from Missouri. So phonology can tell you where somebody's from. And you know, you're not going to get people within a block like Henry Higgins claims to be able to do. And also in America, it's not always as dependable as it can be in England, but still. You can know where Mary Wicks and various actors are from based on listening to things like that. Or here's something else just really cool about sounds. Let's go to British Columbia, and not Vancouver, but somewhere else in it. I must admit I can't name a single other place in British Columbia, but I hear it's a fascinating place, and it's got some of the coolest languages in the world. And I refer to languages I did not talk about on the last show. These are the Salishan languages. Very interesting ways of being a language. One of them is called Belakula, or actually, more indigenously, Nuhalk. In this language, there are many words, there are whole sentences that really don't have any vowels. And this is perfectly normal. So, for example, here is a native speaker of Belakula saying, and he had a bunchberry plant. I don't know why anybody would say that. I don't know what a bunchberry is. But if you were going to say that, and he had a bunchberry plant, here it is in Bellacoola. I kid you not. Listen. Here's the word for shape. Here's the word for bent. Those again, shape. And then the very different word, bent. You want to know what the word for bunchberry is? I mean, I didn't know it in English until encountering this sentence, but bunchberry alone is this. I.e., that's something that you eat. Or, he already came. I'll say he already arrived. I just watched Last Tango in Paris. Sorry. He already arrived is this. Isn't that just the most amazing thing? The Berber languages are like this, too. Usually you trot them out to show this. But also Salish in languages, often, you know, there, there are no vowels in lots of words to the point that it can almost be difficult to figure out what a syllable is because everything is... There actually are languages like that. So there's your sound system cool stuff. It's not going to be about people in Japan not spitting on each other as much. It's going to be bunchberries and Marywicks. Now, something else that might be of interest is the histories of some of the words that we're suddenly using more than we ever thought we would. And people have been asking me to write about this and comment about this. And to be honest, usually I kind of beg off because, as you know, I tend to avoid doing too much etymology because linguistics is a great deal more than etymology. But some of the etymologies of these words are actually very interesting, and they teach us little lessons, and one of those words is isolation. Seems like such an ordinary word, and I'm sitting here experiencing it, sitting here talking to my bathrobe on the left and my rarely worn suit jackets on the right, but I'm in here in isolation. Well, where does that word come from? Well, it comes from, we don't need to go too far back, but where it comes from is Latin, and Latin had a word insula, and what that meant was island, okay? Now, Latin had a lot of kids, such as French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Romanian, Catalan, etc. Well, one of the kids was Italian. So, insula becomes isola, isola. There was a Broadway conductor named Salvatore dell'Isola. He conducted South Pacific. So, isola, right? Well, then there was that other kid, French, that weird kid. I better not say that. The French already hate me for saying some things about French. All right. Then there's that other kid, French. 
Well, in French, you have this metaphorical extension of island into being like an island, and so you're isolated. And the word for that in French was, is, isolé. Okay, isolé. Well, after the Norman Conquest, English, of course, had this intimate relationship with French. It took in this boatload of French words, such that if you're speaking English today, you cannot avoid using a lot of words that originally began in French. And isolé was one of them for a long time. And isolé had a certain flavor. It was brought in later than a lot of the French words. And first, it was used, frankly, by people who were a little pretentious. And so, for example, um, Henry Bolingbroke, who was one of the, the Jacobites, he's, he's trying to get King James restored back to the throne. To talk about pretension, King James was the old pretender. And so, Henry Bolingbroke, it's 1751, and at one point he writes, The events appear to us very often original, unprepared, single, and unrelative, if I may use such a word for want of a better. In French, <laughs> I would say, isolé. So is that kind of word. Or Boswell. Boswell, who did The Life of Johnson, that's almost more interesting than Johnson himself. At one point in the same era, he just writes, it's the sort of thing he wrote, What's Boswell's voice? I'm not going to do in British. Okay, here's a Boswell voice. So, this Hanoverian family is easily here. They have no friends. That's what, <laughs> I feel like that's how he would have talked. Boswell put it that way. Well, if there's this word easily, people are using that, you know that as that gets entrenched, people are going to Englishify it. They're going to pull it in. It's like an amoeba that eats some little piece of crud. Pretty soon, you know, somebody's going to start saying isolated. That's just natural. Easily, okay, isolated. It feels natural. And if somebody says isolated, well, then people are going to start feeling like there's this original verb isolate. And that's where isolate came. Isolation is, of course, inevitable. So it starts with people saying, oh, I feel so easily because I'm a modern man. And pretty soon there are people saying isolated. And pretty soon there's isolation. That's some American. That's the way isolation went. And of course, of course, there were people, you know, say around 1800, who were complaining about this business of isolate because they thought it was an artificial word, not a real word. Because at first, I guess you could say it wasn't because it was new and because it hadn't existed in the language before. But as I've always said, deciding whether something is a real word is pretty much impossible after it gets to the point that everybody's using it. But of course, this Brit person, you know, the affected, Frenchified, and unnecessary word isolated is not English, and we trust never will be. And so there you go, that's what he said, but that didn't really end up having any effect on anything because, of course, it became a word. But something else that you just know is going to happen. You're going to have somebody saying that it's not a real word, and then once it is a real word, somebody's going to have to come along and tell you that the way you say it is wrong and that really it should be said in some other way that almost nobody actually says it. You know that sort of thing is going to happen. And so, for example, William Henry Pinckney Fife. I mean it. That actually was somebody who wrote a great deal about how American English was supposed to be pronounced in the late 19th century. And, you know, I really recommend Fife's books. If you can find copies, it is fun to go through them. First of all, smell them because they're 4,000 years old, and so they smell like mummies. I mean, like Egyptian mummies, not your mother. And also, just this perfectly sane person's notions 
about how you're supposed to say things are absolutely exquisite compared to the way we think about these things today. And with isolate, as far as William Henry Pinckney Fife was concerned, we were supposed to say not isolate, but isolate. You have to pronounce it isolate or isolate. Isolate's okay. Well, he wouldn't have said okay. Isolate is permissible, but isolate is preferable. And this is the sort of thing that he would come up with in, for example, my favorite one of his books is my favorite just because of the title. It's called 18,000 Words Often Mispronounced. 18,000. Is it really true that there can be 18,000 words in a language that everybody's just saying wrong? Isn't it maybe just that what he would prefer? is wrong. But unfortunately, there were these 18,000 words. And in one of the books, he just has it as isolate. He prefers isolate, but you can get away with isolate, but not isolate. For him, that's the other pronunciation, and isolate is better. And really, just going through his books and getting a sense of how a prescriptive person was hearing his language at that time. So, for example, you're not supposed to say gasp, you're supposed to say gosp. And the book isn't that Britishy. It's not that he was waiting for everybody to sound like London. He was just waiting for everybody to sound what to our ears today would be just frankly fucked up. And so gasp is gosp or produce. Can you imagine being new to English and having to learn that not only do you produce a sound, but that produce refers to vegetables and fruits at the market? Have you ever thought about how arbitrary that is? But anyway, so produce. Well, no, I'm saying it wrong, apparently. I'm supposed to say produce. Why? But that's just what he thought. And some of the things that he says are mispronunciations are things that nowadays you don't hear at all. So you have this little window into how some ordinary people said some things in the 1800s. So apparently there were people who were walking around talking about eaching rather than itching. Oh goodness, I've got an each instead of an itch. And he said, well, don't say that. And maybe it worked because nobody says it today or do they? Maybe some of you know somebody who says it or said it, but I never heard somebody say I've got an each. But he didn't like the idea that anybody might have, which presumes that he must have heard it. Or don't say instead, say instead. He kind of goes on about that at one point. No, instead. Who says instead? Apparently somebody did, somebody dead. Actually, that's pretty good. Somebody did who's dead. But today, instead is not, quote unquote, mispronounced instead by anybody who I've known. It's really interesting what you can get from this person. Anyway, it's time for a musical cut. Let's have it be one about isolation, but not one that's sad. Let's have it be something cute. This is one of the very first Broadway cast albums. We're back in 1943. This is a Connecticut Yankee. This is music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Lorenz Hart. This is a Rogers and Hart show actually recorded with the original people, with the original orchestra. This is a precious document. And this is a song that never got done much, but it's called On a Desert Island with You. The singer is Chester Stratton. You'll be able to tell that he was hired mostly because he was a dancer. But this is On a Desert Island with You on one of the very first cast albums, per se. And this is Chester Stratton singing what is actually one of my favorite Rogers and Hart songs about isolation, but with sex. For a year on a desert island with thee Out in the sheer middle of the sea We'll sing tra-la, wouldn't we be happy and gay With thy mama many miles away 
in the morning air. Murmur a blessing, first we'll eat, then we will dress if it's fair. We'll be caressing if it rains, we'll caress. Who knows next year what the population will be out in the middle of the sea. You know what else the virus is going to leave in its wake? Something else that people consider a mistake. It's going to leave a pet peeve behind. And that is that we're often calling this thing corona. It's what I am generally calling it, actually. But that's technically a mistake because there are many coronaviruses, of which the one that we're suffering through right now is just one. Technically, we're dealing with COVID-19, which is one of many coronaviruses. So you're not supposed to say corona. You're not supposed to call it the coronavirus, really, because that's too general. We're talking about COVID-19. Well, what's really going on here? For one thing, why are people saying corona instead of coronavirus? Well, this is one of those backshift things that is perfectly typical, and it's a subtype. And so, for example, the coronavirus, the coronavirus, and then corona. Absolutely inevitable. And it's happened very quickly here because we say it so much. It's like pizza. Never again will you hear anybody comparing COVID to pizza. But pizza starts as what was processed as a kind of pie, pizza pie. That's what it was referred to when it first became familiar to Americans. Then you got pizza pie, then you got pizza. And so, for example, pizza pie. Even in the 50s, people were still calling it pizza pie. This is from a commercial for one of the most disgusting products ever created by humankind. It's pizza sauce in a can. And then you have some sort of cheese that comes with it. So you don't have to go out for pizza. You can just pour it out of the can. I don't quite understand how this worked, but this was the commercial for it in the mid-50s. And listen to Pizza Pie. Is the sauce real pizza? The sauce is great. Is the cheese real pizza? Best you ever ate. Is it real fast pizza? Oh, it's ready in minutes. Real Pizza Pie. With the chef's touch in it. Sure beats going out. Well, I gotta agree. The pizza mix that rates is Chef Boyardee. Get Chef Boyardee complete pizza mix. Beats frozen pizza, even beats going out. Pizza pie in minutes. Mmm, with the chef's touch in it. You know what's fun about this commercial is, do you notice that at the end, the girl says, the pizza makes it racist. I mean, that's not what she's saying, but you have to listen closely to not hear that. It's For some reason, it's racist pizza. Listen, listen to this again. Sure beats going out. Well, I gotta agree. The pizza makes it racist, Chef Boyardee. The pizza makes it racist. <laughs> but also, same era, you can listen to Alice Cramden on The Honeymooners. This episode is called Catch a Star, and this is the one where Ralph Cramden meets Jackie Gleason. Listen to Alice saying, not pizza pie, but pizza pie. It was already happening. You see, I read in a magazine once where Mr. Gleason loved pizza pies. So I went to work and made one of my extra special anchovy pizzas, and I sent it over to him with a note. And before long, pizza. You know, Franklin D. Roosevelt probably never had pizza. It's a relatively new thing in American life. He had broccoli. He did not have pizza. Eleanor, can we have pizza tonight? That? Probably not. Eleanor probably tried it, but he died too early. That's why we're saying corona. But why not COVID-19? And part of it is because the word COVID is ugly. 
compared to corona. And this is based on universal principles of how we process sounds. Corona is consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. Corona and r and n are not stops. So corona. A lot of us, for reasons I never understood, already enjoyed the beer. And part of the appeal of the beer, the reason they chose that name, is partly because corona is a pretty name. Now, I'm sorry to say that, but even with the lime, I would rather have an IPA. But corona also... COVID not only ends in that consonant and that tight I, but corona because it's an aesthetically appealing word. You'd rather have a corona purring in your lap than a COVID. Corona feels more approachable. It gives you an illusion of control. It's a warmer word. So we're dealing with this corona thing, and it sounds like we can actually handle it in some way. We're dealing with this COVID thing. A COVID would have a horn sticking out of its head. It's just that phonotactically, as we put it, corona is more appealing. So, of course, people are going to call it corona instead of COVID-19. That sounds like something Walter Winchell would say. Corona sounds like something that you could lick. So what's happened very quickly is that this term coronavirus that most of us didn't know until about 10 minutes ago is narrowing. It has a narrower meaning in terms of how what I think is going to be most people using it on a daily basis. And so technically, it's a kind of virus, of which there are many beyond COVID-19, but corona is going to refer to that thing that turned life upside down and sent podcasters into closets in early 2020. Words narrow all the time. They narrow probably more than they broaden. What do I mean by narrow? Well, for example, reduce. Reduce used to mean either getting bigger or getting smaller because reduce just meant to go back to an original state. And so if something was smaller, then you would reduce something to its original tininess. But you could also say that we reduced the army to its original grand status of 40,000 men. The idea was just that you led something back to where it was before. Over time, the word narrowed and it came to mean making something smaller. Could have gone the other way, but that's just what happened. Experiment used to mean experience. Experiment meant to have empirical experiences. Now, if one way that you're using this word to mean experience is to say that you're going to demonstrate something through experience, show an experience and therefore prove it, then after a while, experiment might start to narrow to referring to pouring things into test tubes. But originally the idea was that what we think of as an experiment was something that you were verifying through experience rather than just making up the way a lot of the older philosophers tended to do things. Let us imagine a natural law. Well, what about using experience? What about the platonic forms? Well, what about them? No, let's have an experiment, i.e. an experience, where we see that if you put salt on a slug, then it becomes, what is it, shrink or something like that? So that is what experiment originally meant. It narrowed. So our sense of what experiment means would be confusing to somebody 500 years ago. Words don't only narrow and broaden, but they can just go in and out of fashion for no particular reason. Somebody used to say, well, that was when we were divorced. And now we say that's when we got a divorce, that kind of thing. Reducing used to refer to losing weight. It's something that now you hear in old movies. I don't think I've ever heard a living person say it. But on reducing, let's do a little Cole Porter. This is from a show of his called The New Yorkers. This is I'm Getting Myself Ready for You. This one only gets around so much. It's never completely dead, but 
It's not one that Ella Fitzgerald did or anything like that. But it's cute because it's about what used to be called reducing. The idea being that one might want to reduce in order to be attractive, naked to one's lover, something like that. Anyway, this is a contemporary version, as, as in contemporary to 1930, of Getting Myself Ready for You. I've cut out eggs and turkey legs With corned beef hash I'm all through Cause I'm getting myself ready for you I'll never stoop to onion soup And pork and beans are taboo Cause I'm getting myself ready for you sure of being worthy of you, dear, in every way. I'm building a perfect physique, and beside which I want you to holler hooray when first you see me and my soldiers speak. If you still feel I need a meal, I'll risk an olive or two, but I'm getting myself ready for you. You know, speaking of isolation and reduction, the virus is hitting the media really hard. And Slate's part of the media, and so as you can imagine, Slate's not having a very good time right now. There's nothing dire going on, but it's gotten to the point that it would really help Slate even more than it helped in the past if you subscribed to this thing called Slate Plus. And what Slate Plus means is that after the show, you get a little tag of extra information that you can't get anywhere else, and in addition, you don't have to listen to ads and it's for a nominal fee, but it's a fee that really helps us out in these tough times. You go to slate.com slash lexicon plus, and you get a little more show. If you want a little more Lexicon Valley, you get it by signing up for Slate Plus. And of course, that would also sign you up for little bits more of all of the other podcasts that Slate does. So just consider even more than before trying out some Slate Plus. You'll be glad you did. For example, this week, my Slate Plus segment is not going to be about Bugs Bunny or Broadway musicals or rear ends or any of the other things that seem to pop up in my Slate Plus segments. You're going to learn something about rainbows, something about rainbows you never knew. I'm not going to play the rainbow connection. I'm just going to tell you some stuff about rainbows. But the only way you can know what the hell I'm talking about is you have to sign up for Slate Plus. That's slate.com slash lexicon plus. Etymology is just one small corner of linguistics. But if etymology isn't technically what linguistics is, well, you know, the lockdown is technically not what life is or should be. And so irregularity beckons. I'm going to give you another etymology because it's another one that's really neat and teaches us other stuff. And that's virtual. We're doing so many things virtually, this Zoom business. The etymology of Zoom is frankly not very interesting. You can practically make it up. But virtual is a weird little word. Virtual starts with the ver, the vir, and that's Latin for man. Well, what's manly about, you know, looking at gallery in Zoom and having strangely mediated conversations with people? Well, where that comes from is these metaphorical changes that ooch along bit by bit, and next thing you know, you've got this brand new word that has nothing perceptible to do with where it began. That is what is linguistic about etymologies. And so, for example, virtual starts as vir, starts as man, and then there's an idea that a man, you know, for better or for worse, it wasn't a woman, it's a man, has power. So a man does things. And so there arose this meaning virtual that meant not what we might mean today by, for example, virile, but you have a word virtual that means that it exerts a power, that it produces an effect. 
So you read, for example, scientists talking about virtual heat, and what they mean is heat that does something in what was beginning to be called at the time an experiment. By virtual heat, they don't mean meta heat or heat that isn't quite itself. They mean that it produces an effect. Well, in life, you want a word that means that something is happening, that an effect is going on, despite the fact that it isn't real. You want a word for an effect, so to speak. Well, virtual moved into that. So the idea was not only is something having an effect, but it's an effect that gives you an illusion of something behind it that isn't actually there. That idea of effect that we had, virtual slid into that. And so that's where you got the idea of virtual meaning imagined. And so bit by bit. So virtual narrowed from manly to having an effect to having a special effect, an illusion that makes it seem as if something is there in actuality that isn't. And next thing you know, you've got Zoom. So virtual is a weird word in, say, the 1500s. Reading English in the 1500s and the 1600s is a very treacherous thing because you can never be quite sure what words, especially these French and Latinate words, mean at the time as opposed to now. And so what does somebody mean by experiment? Do they mean experience or do they mean test tubes? What does somebody mean by reduce? Do they mean make smaller or do they just mean to lead back? And often the word is tipping and so you have to decide what do they mean by sensible? Do they mean level-headed or do they mean relating to sense in the sense that we, in the sense, there you go, that we would say sensory. You have to be very careful with that sort of thing. It's why I say, with many people throwing bricks and tomatoes and watermelons at me when I do, that we have to be very careful with our Shakespeare because we understand all of the words, but we often don't know that we're not readily processing what Shakespeare meant. It's interesting. But virtual is one of those words. And all sorts of things go on. So for example, virtuous is now what we use to say moral. And that's a whole other story. But it used to be that virtual could mean that too. Virtual could mean moral. Entrance and entry. Think about that. Those are two words that technically mean the same thing, but you know when to use one and when to use the other. You know, entrance is perhaps more vigorous. Entry is a little more abstract. Or awful used to mean what we refer to now as awesome. Why not? There's nothing negative about full. And the word just happened to change. And so, with veer and virtual, this is why when you're reading about something like virtue, in Aristotle, it can be very confusing. I mean, if you're reading something like the ethics, the Nicomachean ethics, you're sitting there reading him about virtue, and if you try to read it too fast, you're thinking, virtue. And you're thinking, well, somebody who waits until marriage, or somebody who works with doctors without borders, or something. But no, that's not what he means by virtue. What he means is something that we would more gracefully translate as excellence, as in, you're doing the best that you can do at what you're the best at, and that is your contribution to this thing called life. That is a very useful and wonderful thing to get from, say, a philosophy course where overall it can be hard to quite figure out how you're supposed to apply any of this to life. But you have to know that virtue means excellence. Well, why? Because when translations into English of Aristotle started being made, well, that notion of virtual as being about accomplishment, about having an effect, about doing things, about manliness, so to speak, all of that was more current 
in the educated mind. And so virtue was virtue, like manly. And that's why it could mean excellence back then. So virtual today, and we think of Zoom, is a word with quite a history, and it's come a long, long way from referring to a human being with a penis. In any case, if Aristotelian virtue were set to music, for me it would be this. You know what that is? That's the theme song to the TV show Coach. And you know, it's, it may seem evanescent, but good writing. This is a good arranging in particular. Like, he, listen to the middle, the way all of the instrumentation changes. That's very deft. Anyway, that for me always sounds like virtue. Now, I want to eat some crow. This is really very important. Talked about this just business and not one, but two shows, and I talked about it being one of my pet peeves. Well, it is a truism in linguistics that people who say they would never say something or say that they don't like something in language so often turn out to be doing it themselves. You just see this all the time. So we tell each other this all the time. But I will openly admit that there's a little bit, at least in me, that always thinks, well, I, of course, would never actually use any of the things that I don't like in language because, well, I'm a linguist and so I'm more conscious of these things, etc. Not true. Not true at all. Yitzi Lindenbaum, thank you for pointing this out because, you know, talk about philosophy and know thyself. Well, now I know a little bit about myself other than that I apparently say war instead of were. And it is that... I do this just thing, too. I didn't know. I wouldn't have known. But here I am in the episode on Native American languages. And listen to me say, instead of not just in English, just not in English. Listen. And what's interesting about it is that usually in languages, there's a tendency for E to mean cute, tiny, little, unthreatening. That's just not in English. So it's not just that we say teeny, but then to it. So apparently I do it too. And I want you all to know that I now know that I do it too. And you know, by the way, on the topic of Native American, you all love the language family shows I'm noticing. I get the feeling some of you wouldn't mind if every week I just did a different language family. And I can't do that. But you know, I don't usually sell myself in this way, but I think it would almost be silly if I didn't say if you want me just doing one language family after another and doing every language family in the world within reason, I have done a course like that for the Great Courses Company. 
And if I say so, it's a, it's a pretty tasty little set where I take you through every language family anybody would want to know anything about. I don't usually advertise my own stuff on this show, but it would be almost silly if I didn't say that language families of the world put together by me exist with the Great Courses people. And you know, if you're one of my listeners who could do without the show tunes, well, for some reason at the teaching company, they don't let me play something by Rogers and Hammerstein after I talk about Estonian, etc. So you get to have me just sticking to the subject. That's going to be the end of our show for this week. And what I'd like to play is Steely Dan's Peg, because last night I made myself around seven o'clock a bourbon elderberry liqueur cocktail and listened to Asia from beginning to end. I hadn't done that in a very long time. And of course, Peg is just a delight. But, you know, I've played Peg on this show before. So, you know, I'm going to take another older pop song that has some of the same feeling in that to get a little music-y on you. It uses the warm interval of the fourth, and so it always gave me a kind of a similar feeling to Peg. This is Arrested Development, not the Arrested Development of TV, but Arrested Development, the pop group, Short Lives, but Wonderful While They Flew, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And this is Mr. Wendell. People used to, you know, stretch before dancing to this song. It was everywhere for about 15 minutes. Mr. Wendell, and it's warm. It's got the fourth. Never mind what that means. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. You know how you probably watched a lot of Coach just kind of by accident? Admit it, you saw a lot of Coach. I certainly did. I'm not quite sure why. I guess it was on after something else I watched. But I saw a lot of Coach. And I, as you might guess, do not like football. That thing ran for nine seasons. Anyway, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I'm John McWhorter. Go ahead, Mr. Wimp. Mr. Wendell has freedom, a free that you and I think is dumb.